Welcome to Patriots of the Core. I'm Thad Forrester. This podcast exists because of my little brother, Mark Forrester. He was angered by the attacks on 9-11, so he joined the military to help rid the world of terrorists. On September 29, 2010, he was killed on his first deployment. From his death notification to the dignified transfer ceremony, his viewing, funeral, and subsequent memorials, I was amazed at the new world of warriors we met. These patriots have become close to our family and been huge supports. They stood out because of their willingness to voluntarily fight evil. They believed in freedom. Because of their actions, I started this podcast to interview great Americans who serve their country and communities. Thank you for tuning in. Well, Ken, this is a special, you know, September 29th edition of Patriots of the Core podcast. And I really appreciate you joining us today for to represent the 13 years since my brother Mark's death. And this is this is pretty cool too because you and I have never talked except for like um we've only communicated the last few weeks and then talked, I think, a week ago. So really appreciate you contacting me and letting us know about you and that you were there deployed with Mark. But to start out, what was your role at Firebase Cobra? slash Tinsley. Yeah. All right. So uh, my role, I was the uh, senior weapon sergeant on the ODA. Um, that one was uh, 7212. I bounced around a couple of ODAs before I got to this one. Um, but yeah, um, our mission, we found out early on, right before we deployed, uh, it was one of those things where this one popped up. And I remember everybody was talking about it. I was like, oh, they were on National Geographic. That area is hot, just north of the Hellman. You know, there's a lot target rich environment. I'm like, I need to go on that. Like, that's the one we need to get. I don't know how it happened. I wasn't in charge of anything, but all I know is that 7212 and 7216 were going to be co-located at Firebase Cobra or Tinsley slash Tinsley. Um, so I was ecstatic about it. You know, target rich environment. I already had a couple combat deployments before that. And back then, you know, in the early years, 2000s, uh, when the war first kicked off, you know, I, my first deployment was 2003, straight out of basic training, a couple months training back in the rear, volunteered to deploy to Iraq. So it's just been nonstop, back-to-back-to-back deployments. Um, anyways, ended up going to Firebase Simsley. This was now my second combat deployment with Special Forces. I already got a taste of blood. You know, this was the first place where I've been to where I can pick my own weapons. I have input in the missions that we're going to, you know, choose to go on. I can talk directly to the captain, utilizing my specialty of weapons and max effective ranges of fire, you know, tactics, and kind of like influence or provide some sort of clarity and influence so that the commander can make the best decision possible to be successful on that mission. And this is the first time I'm playing in the big boy leagues. You know, I, I was already varsity. I was, you know, whenever I was in the regular army, I was always the top tier guy. Like I was the old go-to guy. I get to special forces and I'm surrounded by peers that are, you know, they specialize in everything. They're, you know, master of none, jack of all trades, but they have their specialties. So this was the first time that I was actually involved in an organization where it was just like, man, I felt like I was around peers. Everybody was awesome. All the attachments that we went, we had, they were just phenomenal from the EOD guys to the combat controllers, which, you know, <laughs> leads us to this, uh, this uh, podcast because man, I am thoroughly impressed with those guys. And, um, so yeah, that was my my role on the ODA was uh I was the senior weapon sergeant for seven two one two. All right, so you must have gotten there in August of twenty ten. Is that right? Yeah, I so the team showed up. I showed up probably about two or three weeks after the team. Uh, 
yeah, so I, I showed up a little bit later. And then uh, my junior ended up getting, he ended up getting some duty to go down in Kandahar to be a liaison. So I was the only, technically I was the only weapon sergeant on my ODA. Um, and, and I happened to be the senior guy. Okay. How would you describe your, your emotional health and mental health at the time you, you know, before you deployed to Cobra? I was exactly what was needed in the battlefield. Um, but once we returned back to the States, uh, I was no good for being back home. I, I was always categorized at that guy, as that guy. And this was after my first combat deployment in 2003, coming back in 2004. I was categorized as that guy that was put in a glass jar, breaking case of emergency. You know, I was loved when I was overseas because the guys felt safe being around me. I was always the guy that kicked the door down first. Hey, let me go in. If there was an IED, suspected IEDs down the road and we needed to search it, hey, everybody stand back. I'm going to take point. Let me clear this. I've done this before. I have experience. So my thought process was if I don't have a family, you know, I, I have my mother, I have my father, I have my brothers and siblings. Outside of that, I'm not close to anyone else. So if anybody's going to die, I, I'd rather it be me than other guys that have tight-knit families and or they have, you know, sons, daughters, you know, that kind of stuff. So I was always that guy that always pushed myself forward. And again, my thought process was, if I do die, this is the my family's going to get a nice chunk of money, $400,000, the most money that I'll ever make, you know. Um, and somehow I would justify that in my mind, stating that, yeah, you know, I would serve my country. I'd protect my brothers in arms next to me and my family's taken care of financially. Yeah. Well, will you describe your first meeting with Mark or your interactions with Mark? Because he had already been there since I believe he'd been in country since May. Yeah. And so his the ODA he was with had had moved out and you came in and and took their place. So what was your, what were your early interactions like with him? Um, and did you know anything about him and, um, and George, the other JTAC before you got there? So uh, obviously Mark was attached to our ODA. Um, just like you said, when we first got there, I heard a little bit about him because like I said, I showed up a little bit later. Um, when I showed up to the, to the team, you know, I talked to the captain Captain uh, Wes, Wes Wilson, he ended up telling me, you know, giving me the rundown of the land. Everybody gave me the rundown of what's going on. But Cap Captain Wes was always like, how would I consider him? It, more, more of like a father figure almost. You know, he's a young guy. But when you talk to him, it's like talking to an older sibling, like an older brother that has your best interest. And uh, so he would always sit down, and, you know, that when I, when I first came in, he sat down with me gave me the lay of the land, told me about our attachments, and he told me about Mark. And he was like, hey, we got a CCP guy. Uh, you know, this is his first combat deployment, but he's been here before, and he's pretty good. And I'm like, hey, man, as long as he kills people, I'm good with that, you know? And what I mean by killing people, kill the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we live in a world where, God forbid, you say something, oh, my God, he's he's just running around killing people. No, like, he was doing his his job, going yeah. out there and, and, and destroying the enemy. So, yeah, so I told Cap, as long as he's good to go and he does his job killing bad guys, we're good. He's, he's good on my book. Same thing with George Earhart. Um, same thing. Heard nothing but great things. Hey, he's a solid dude. He's on the ODA. We're co, you know, we're co-located. We're working together. Um, so we're going to be doing a lot of joint missions together. We got this one big mission coming up. Both ODAs, are gonna, well, 7212 is going to be coming out. The other T ODA, 7216, they're going to be uh, 
uh, acting as a QRF for us. Um, so that was my first, I guess, meet and greet, or how should I say, introduction to Mark without meeting him yet. Okay. And then once you got there, what was your what were your early uh, interactions like with him? Okay. So when I first got there, uh, I think I had a couple of days. Like there was this big mission that was getting planned out, right? And apparently no U.S. forces had been there in a certain amount of years, like one or two years, something ridiculous. Like the Taliban was some completely brazen. Like they had no fear of U.S. forces. They wanted to fight. You know, they were fresh out of wherever the heck they came from. And uh, so I wanted to get on this mission. They were like, hey, Ken, you got to go through your weapons. You got to do all this knots. I was like, yep, roger that. So I didn't really get to meet Mark, you know, shoot the shit with him, sit down with him or anything like that. My whole goal was, hey, let me get my all my stuff issued to me. Um, let me go get to the range. Let me zero my weapons. Let me make sure my my heavy weapons are firing. Everything's correct. Let me take out all the mortar systems, line up the mortar sites, make sure everything's bore sighted. I, I, my job was to make sure that not only was I getting ready to go on this mission because I wanted to get my kill on, but I wanted to make sure that all of my guys were good to go with their weapon systems and none of them were malfunction. Everything was working properly. PCCs, PCIs. Who help me understand your role as a senior weapons sergeant just a little bit more? Is that first of all, you're talking about your guys. Who are some of your guys? Like, is that a is that a Mark Madison kind of guy? These other guys on the ground? Anybody that needs weapons on your team? Yeah. So as a as an 18 Bravo weapons sergeant, I'm in charge of all weapons, foreign and domestic. So I specialize in all the weapons that the militaries are using, both foreign and domestic. I'm in charge of heavy weapons. I'm also in charge of small arms weapons. Heavy weapons being anything from um, uh, mortar systems uh, to anti-aircraft missiles, um, rockets. Um, and then we got small arms weapons, anything from pistols to rifles. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I just wasn't yep. familiar with that role. So you you were usually on the vehicle or were you ever dismounted? So uh, that was... I think it was a good call for my team starting to keep me on the vehicles. Um, first of all, I knew weapons in, in and out. So all the heavy weapons, obviously, you want to have a guy that's completely savvy. We've got a lot of new technology. At that time, was new technology. you know. And I can talk a lot about the things that we're talking about now because a good what, 10, 13 years have passed by. So technology's changed and stuff. But uh, back then, you know, we had the latest and greatest. We had, you know, laser-sighted Mark 9, upgraded Mark 19s, which are grenade launchers that you can fire a laser, it bounces back and it sets the reticles up. And all you have to do is move those reticles. Now you got yourself a sniper rifle, almost um, machine gun grenade launcher. Um, we had mini guns out there. Uh, we had a lot of great, great firepower. So I, it was a good move on Mark. Uh, I'm sorry, not on Mark. Um, on our team starting to keep me on the trucks for that aspect. Um, even though I was always wanting to be on the ground because I could do, I felt like I could do a little bit more damage, especially when it came to the tactical question. Um, I was a big guy. I was intimidating. Uh, also, yeah, yeah, I had a I had a reputation within that area. I forgot if they called me Aswa Jundi or something like that. It was like a dark one or dark soldier. But I was the darkest guy on my ODA as well, besides <laughs> Calvin Harrison. And uh, and the other medic, but he ended up um, doing liaison work as well. The dark one, that's what they called you? So, something around that line, because <laughs> I was one of the darkest guys out there. You know, okay. I'm, I'm in the Afghan sun. Imagine me now, and I stay out of the sun, I would get even darker. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 
All right, so you and Mark had some conflict. I don't know how serious it was or for how long. Will you explain it, how that happened and why, and then how you resolved it? Yeah, so we would go on several missions. Now, so this is the thing. Mark was phenomenal at his job, right? And it was almost like I. this was an immaturity factor on my end, egotistical factor on my end as well. Because here I am, I'm the guy on the ground. I... In my mind, I'm like, I'm controlling this battle space. Like, I'm the one that says, hey, this heavy weapon's going to fire, and this was going to open it, even though it was the captain's fault. But again, me being immature Ken, having a lot of combat experience, I, you know, it was an ego thing. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm the best thing since sliced bread type thing. So <laughs> Mark Forrester gets there, and he's like, yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm setting up the mortar. I'm, I'm getting things done. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, hey, man, I'm about to shoot some mortars, get those birds out of the sky. He's like, negative i got birds on picket station right now you can't fire uh, you know something about the ROS or the airspace not being clear and he's like i can't clearly you know you can't fire the airspace isn't clear and i'm like i don't give a damn i was like mark this is my airspace get your birds out of there or i'm launching mortars you know and so we kind of got into an argument about that and it was and this I, is all over the radio no no no, no. Right? this like we were next to each other okay okay yeah yeah yeah, and uh, I was like, no, like, get the heck out of here, bro. Get your birds out of here. I'm going to launch mortars. What are you guys going to do? They don't kill anything. They have to PID and make sure we're getting fired at from here. They're not going to open fire. I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and have a full-blown argument with you. Get your birds out of the sky and launch around. So I just freaking went over there, launch around. Next thing you know, he got all upset, rightfully so. And he's like calling on the radio, got the birds out of there. I fired my rounds, and I was like, no, I'm going to shoot mortars. This is what I do. Get your birds out of there. When I need your birds, then you call them in. Kind of a dick move, you know, um, especially during a, 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 a firefight. And um, so it's one of those things that after the, uh, you know, once we got back, uh, adrenaline cooled down, my temper cooled down. I ended up, you know, really thinking about it. I'm like, man, that was that was really stupid. You know, like, that, what the heck are you doing? And again, this is one of those things where it's a combination of, uh, re-entry trauma, which is what I'm finding out now from former PTSD, uh, my safety mechanism was aggression. The more aggression, aggressive I am, the more I can kill the bad guys, neutralize the threat, the less of our guys get hit or killed or I get hit or killed. So that was that was my mindset. So any sort of like backsass or aggression towards me of not doing my job, I already talked that as a hostile act. So that was my way of acting out like get your shit out of my you know airspace um but afterwards i ended up going up to mark and uh, you know i apologized to him and i'm like hey man i'm really sorry about what i did it was it was very unprofessional of me to do and i was like look man i'm, I'm just out here to kill bad guys you know like how can we do that together and he's like dude I'm, I'm doing the same thing i'm out here doing the lord's work like i'm out here to do the same exact thing you're you're doing and i was like all right so how can we work together how can we combine your firepower and my firepower and make things happen and be the most lethal we can be on the battlefield. And that's when we created this beautiful um, symphony of just death and destruction, where I would open up with HE and smoke and I would do a fire, uh, a volley fire where it would be alternating HE smoke, HE smoke. The last one being barked by smoke, I would tell him my rounds were complete. He would then call the birds in, which you know, if the birds didn't see, he would call the birds in and they would mark off of that last smoke. You know, and mind you, we're shooting anywhere from 81 millimeters to uh, uh, 120 millimeter mortars. 
So this is giant freaking, you know, smoke, giant fire. The birds are going to see this. So the birds are coming in. They're strafing off on my last round and finishing on anything that's alive in, in that area. It was beautiful. After that, I was like, Mark, you're my go-to dude. Like, let's, let's work together. And uh, he was all about it. God bless his heart. And he was so much more emotionally um, mature than I was, you know. He could have easily been like other dudes or like me, you know, get on my face. Hey, I've been here longer than you, without you, you know, like that kind of stuff. He just, he got mad, walked off, called his birds off and just chilled out, you know, and just chilled. Waited until I got back, didn't rub it in my face or nothing when we came back. And I was just like, man, there's something up with this guy. I, I like him. I like him. And then, you know, throughout that deployment, shortly after that, we go out, we do trainings. Uh, Mark would always like have us going out there and calling for fire and doing training for like JTAC. Hey, you know, letting us know when you talk to the birds, then know you're non-JTAC qualified so that they can work with you and they understand you don't know as much and they'll guide you through some of the steps, you know? And so we would be out there. I know another Mark Madison, you know, we would be out there all the time with the radios, you know, doing that number. And then just like really combining fires together, you know, utilizing the mortar system and that, air support and just freaking wrecking out. I mean, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I, I, I love that dude, man. He was, he was amazing at what he did and he really enjoyed it. He did. He had found his calling, but I, it sounds like, sounds like you had found at least one of your callings too in life. Yeah, so what was it about Mark that, that stood out to you? I think you, you said you knew there was something maybe different is the, is the word. What was it? Yeah. Okay. So I think the, the major I don't want to incriminate my ODA, but, you know, some extracurricular activities in the beverage department sector would come in from time to time, you know, had a successful mission, not going to go out for a while. You want to celebrate your successes. And, um, and I remember I asked Mark, I was like, Hey, Mark, would you like a taste of this? You know, would you like a sip of this tasty beverage? He was like, nah, man, I don't drink. I'm like, wait, what? And I was like, you telling me you don't drink at all? He was like, no, man. I was like, have you ever? No, I've never drank. And I'm like, what? I was like, I've never met a man that has never drank alcohol. And all of a sudden, one of the guys was like, oh, yeah, he's a virgin, too. And I was just like, hold on a second. Wait, you've never drank alcohol and you're a virgin. I was like, what are you, bro? I was like, what are you? I was like, you, you know, most of the time when you hear things about guys like that, you automatically assume, hey, this dude's a coward or he's a beta male, you know, things like that. And I was just so, uh, how can I say, flabbergasted. I was so flabbergasted that such a conductor of a dealer of death can be on such a righteous path. And I was like, it completely blew my mind. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is, this is pretty badass, bro. I was like, I'm not going to lie, man. You know, and I remember when when I when when he had said that, you know, I found out that he was a virgin. I thought to myself, I'm like, man, I'm really thinking about it. I'm like, because he also told me that he was saving himself for his whenever he settles down and he finds a wife and they finds the right one. And then he told me what his qualities were that he was looking in a woman, and I was just like, you know, it, it got me thinking later on that night. And I'm like, man, I was like, I wish I could have been on that path. You know, like. There's nothing glorious about giving it up to everyone, you know, and having your way and all that. No, man, like there's something truly powerful and special about saving yourself for the right one, finding that right person and giving yourself fully to that person. But yeah, that, that, it, that was just my thing. And, and after that, I was just like, man, I, 
I love this dude. Like he's the best human being I've ever met in my life. <laughs> I was like, wow. You know, I was if really he here. had not have been as skilled at his job, would you have responded a little differently? If he was a coward? If he yes. just wasn't as good as at, at, at dealing destruction and death. Yeah. Yeah, I would have. I would have wrote him off right off the bat. Like, you're useless. Get away from me. Um, I have no respect for you. And that's literally how I treated a, I didn't treat guys. Okay, let me refrain for this. Now this starts going into the PTSD section as well. I would see guys, and as long as you tried, even if you weren't as skilled, as long as you tried and you made a conscious effort to get better, because I was always at the range. You want to come to the range? I don't care if you want to come or not. If you suck and I saw you suck, we're going to the range until you not suck, right? But it, it, it was if I saw guys that sucked and they were cowards, you know, something would pie off like whenever I got hit. And I look back, you know, my guys are taking cover, you know, cover position. But I, I remember seeing one guy, I forgot what ODA he was, but he was, I think he was the captain of the ODA coming to relieve us. And this dude was a straight up, coward man his his kevlar was all cocksided you know had no attempt made no attempt to come grab me no pop and smoke to clear you know the lane of fire or obscure my maneuver nothing like the dude was just a pure coward he ended up jumping on the bird to go back um for uh i forgot what his stupid excuse was but claiming to get ammo or some nonsense but he got out of the battlefield and he, he tricked the people coming to drop off ammo and other personnel to get him out of there Anyways, I heard what I heard was he ended up getting fired, but that's the kind of shit that right there, like even talking about it right now, I get angry. Like, you know, I was like, cowardice will get you killed. And I've seen it so many times, man. You, you hesitating and not even just hesitation. It's natural for you to hesitate a little bit, but hesitating and then cowarding down, not doing your duty gets other people killed. And it's never that coward that dies. It's everyone else. Sort of like drunk drivers. It's never the drunk driver that dies. It's everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about September 29th, Ken? Will you, will you describe from your from your standpoint what happened that day? Yeah. Um, okay. Where do we start? Uh, so Wes ended up touching on uh, a lot of this on his podcast. I'm going to mention it from our, so I was on the lead vehicle on the right-hand side. We were roll, we were doing a rolling kind of echelon, um, I guess, moving, moving assault type L thing with an L. Yeah. On the, on that day, that's a day. And this is the thing. And I don't know if Tony Vanette got hit that day or the day before or the day after, but I remember it was just a lot of fighting in that area. Um, I remember when we first got into there and I even Wes talked about this, they would always put IEDs in the front entrance and then the rear entrance. Once you get past those IEDs, you're pretty much clear and maneuver um, through the through the village. So we were standing by waiting. Once they cleared the IEDs, the, maneuver, uh, the ground element ended up going in and started their movement and gun trucks ended up going to the left-hand side. Um, in, and in between us was a little river that was flowing. So we couldn't really cross that. Plus, even if we were to cross that, it would be nothing but farm fields and irrigation. So when we first got on that mission, uh, it was the Taliban's main focus was to go after the gun trucks. They weren't really messing with the guys on the ground. Their biggest thing was always to take out the tanks. They call Humvees tanks, you know, I guess, because it was up armor, which just had a lot of firepower. So 
that's kind of why I also like being on the drugs because I knew we were always going to get into a firefight. And um, so anyways, yeah, so we get up there and I remember it was my gun truck. And then the one behind me was, was Tony Vanette was on the, on the turret. Tony Vanette ended up get, um dying later on. I don't know if you recall that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it seems like he was in January of 2011. Does that sound right? Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, that as initially, once we got in there, it was just nice little firefight. Um, it was one of those things where it just started from the very beginning. Dismount started clearing. And after that, you know, it would be like, okay, cool. Well, we can't, we had a, I guess, a limit, a point of where we couldn't cross. So we ended up having to go on the other side and change that L pattern onto the other side. So now we're on the other side on the road next to the mountains and we're pretty much just skirting. So the, so the way that the ground uh, element is moving is they're moving like this and we're moving alongside. So if something happens to the ground guys, we can fire this way. Same thing, the, the ground guys can fire up. So we got sectors fired, like we're good to go. Um, anyways, that, that day that that happened with uh, Mark and Cal, uh, we had gotten into a, it was a pretty well-coordinated decent sized ambush. And uh, and I remember, oh man, this is gonna freak you out. But I can tell you right now, I've got Chief Little that can corroborate my story on this one. I remember we're going up and we're coming up on a clearance. Like, you know, we're just kind of going up a little baby hill um, and the compounds are all to our left, the villages to the left and the mountains are on our right hand side. But as we're going up, mind you, I'm, I'm on the turret as well. I could see there was a flat little like clearance area where we can essentially stage out of, which we eventually did later on. Um, so when we got up there, I remember I, I stopped the vehicle and all of a sudden I told Chief Little, I'm like, Chief, do you feel that? Because it's it's sort of like you hit a wall and all I could feel is just evil. And that's the best way I can describe it, man. It just felt evil. And I was like, Chief Little, Chief Little, do you feel that? And he was like, yeah, I was like, do you feel that? And he was like, yeah, man. And I was like, does that feel evil to you? He's like, yeah. So all of a sudden now we passed and we're, my gun truck is passed on the clearing. And I remember I looked back and I was going to tell Tony to stop his vehicle because I just felt something. And when I looked back, all of a sudden, boom, things just started erupting and I just seen Tony go down. And I'm like, what the heck? So I get on the gun truck, returning fire. We don't know where the fire is coming from, but all we do is we see um, uh, walls and a heavy vegetation. So I'm doing the best that I can to lay down suppressive fire, just shooting. And, and it was pretty accurate fire because the rounds were impacting. We, I had ammo cans all alongside my turrets and I provided pictures for you. And you can see on those ammo cans, we ended up having to put um, kind of like steel metal plates to block the bullets from going and hitting the bullets in the ammo can. So all you hear is slap, 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 you know, like all the metal cans, you know, they get hit by the bullet, they would slap and just like reverberate. And uh, so doing the best, obviously gained massive super, uh, firepower. I look back, I'm like, Tony, you're right. He's like, yeah, man, I got shot in my calf. We're good. And I'm like, all right, fuck, get back in the fight. So, you know, it's not like something I had to tell him anyways. The dude was a hard charger. He was a seasoned veteran. Guy had freaking just as many combat deployments as I had, I think probably even more. And uh, so he was right back into the fight. So we ended up cook, uh, keep pushing forward. And I don't remember if we had a pause after that, or if that was the day that that happened with Cal and Mark. Um, but I do recall that when that incident happened with Cal and Mark, 
my thought process as the lead vehicle was to push our vehicle uh, a little bit further ahead than normally we would because the Taliban had been targeting us this whole time. I mean, the whole deployment was pretty much targeting the gun trucks. So I figured in my mind, I would get a little bit ahead of the dismounts. Um, that way I could draw fire. So if the Taliban were to open up, I could keep my, I mean, my guys, the guys that were on that ODA or the attachments, I would call them my guys, you know? Um, and it's, it's just like a brotherly thing. Like, oh, these are my family, my brothers, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, th I thought to myself, maybe if I push my gun truck a little bit ahead, we can draw the enemy's fire and give the guys on the ground a little bit more, you know, so that they can see or maneuver, you know, that stuff instead of being right on top of the action. Um, I was wrong. So uh, the Taliban had ended up shifting their tactics and saying, no, nah, screw the gun trucks. Um, we're going to go after the dismounts. And uh, yeah, so once that happened, you know, I was already pushed up to the point where I couldn't pop a, we couldn't pop a U-turn with our, with our gun truck. The only way to go backwards was to reverse the gun truck. And I think I had an A&A &A behind me. Either ways, long story short, man, that stuff came on the radio. And that's when I heard, you know, um, Cal had gotten, he was KIA, Cal's hit. Was that, was that from Mark? Yeah, Who Mark, said that? Mark, Mark called it on the radio stating that Cal, Calvin guy had gotten hit. And I remember hearing it on the radio. And I'm just like, what the heck, what the heck's happening? I'm asking, I'm like, yo, what the heck is happening? You know, and I forgot, it was just like, yeah, dude, it sounds like Calvin's KIA. And I'm like, there's no freaking way. You know, kept hearing Mark come on the radio. Hey, Calvin's, Calvin's down, Calvin's dead. You know, anyways. So Ken, could you, know, you hear any fire, any any guns going off in the background of Mark from Mark's radio calls at that it, time? It, it was sporadic. And that's the thing. I'm just, you know, first of all, I didn't know where they, the guys were at. Um, you know, I, we would always shoot uh, star clusters. No stars clusters were going off. Um, I'm trying to listen for gunfire to see where the guys are at. Then I would hear sporadic, you know, onesies and two shots, like boom, 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 you know, and then just stops and nothing, nothing else, you know. And I'm just like, what the heck, you know? I'm freaking out. I'm like, hey, man, why are they not shooting the star cluster? So I'm kind of getting on my radio. I guess at that time that I got on the radio, where I was requesting that they shoot up the star cluster, I think Mark had changed channels and was talking to others. Um, all I know is that my request for them shooting star clusters up to mark their frontline trace was not heard. And it wasn't until, like, that's the thing, you know, these things, they could have happened, you know, an hour or two, everything just seemed so quick, so fast. And uh, and all of a sudden, the, the team started, and he gets on the radio, and he's clicking, he's like, hey, I got two guys, KIA, Mark and Calvin are dead, and I'm I'm yelling on the radio, hey, shoot a star cluster. I need a frontline trace. I need a frontline trace. So I guess Matt does shoot off the star cluster. And once that happens, I'm, you know, that they're the most forward element. So my mind was, I'm gonna strafe this area with fire because they are the most forward element. So now I know where they're at. I'm gonna strafe everything in front of them and just do a Z pattern and just try to whoever's shooting at these guys, try to keep the no, was that all green zone that you were going to be strafing? I'm sorry, what? Was it all green zone, the area yeah, you'd be yeah. strafing? Yeah, okay. real, real, real heavily vegetated. Very, yeah. very heavily vegetated. Again, I couldn't see anything. So right now I'm just wishful thinking, hopefully getting the, you know, the enemy's head on the ground, maybe shooting next to them 
or near them so that they can go ahead and take off and you know stop engaging our guys um but yeah uh, once we heard that on the radio i was like I, you know i i can't believe it. it it was very 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 somber day let's put it that way um i was immediately after, after the lowland fire i remember and uh i remember that i ended up going and you know this is one of those things where i kind of again a dick move from ken and I'm very, very immature. And I was, so, but I was so mad that we had lost two guys. And I was, you know, a, a lot of frustration, a lot of anger. You know, like, why would the two most junior guys, Calvin Harrison and Mark Forster, be by themselves in the front? You know, there was a lot of questions going on for me. And I'm just regurgitating now, letting you know what I felt at that moment the anger and the frustration. And I just couldn't believe that that happened. And I was already, now the anger starting to build up. And I remember when we all consolidated, it was one of those things where I went up to the to the captain, you know, and I told the captain and I was like, you see what the heck I was talking about back in the rear? And I was like, so what's up, sir? Are you going to let the leash go? I was like, you're going to let the leash go? Because one thing that I've always told the guys, especially every officer that I've ever served with whenever, right before we deployed, I was like, look, man, I've seen this a lot before from officers. You guys are bred into the rules of engagement, You, all this stuff. You're very timid, you know, collateral damage, all this nonsense. And I was like, I understand. I was like, I'm not going to do it. And I always tell the officer, I'm not going to do anything that's going to land us in jail. But you need to be aggressive. These people only understand aggression. Aggression, the best what defense is a, good, a hardcore offense. So that's kind of where my mindset was after all the years that I've been fighting. You gotta bring the fight. You gotta keep these guys and let them know, instill fear in their psyche. Let them know we're not playing games, you know. And another thing is be as lethal as possible. They've been, you know, these Afghan, you know, and a lot of them are foreign fighters from other places. But Afghans been fighting for how many thousands of years? Like they just nonstop war from all these major superpowers. Like the only thing they understand is aggression, you know. So that was one of those things. So when that happened, you know, I got mad at, uh, at Wes and I was like, now you're going to take the leash off. Now you see what I'm talking about. I was like, he was like, all right. And I was like, let's take the leash off. So, so he was like, all right, what do you need? And I was like, so I, I directed the guys lay mortars straight to the area because that whole area. now all the good people had already left. They, 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 they fled. The only ones that are there are there to fight. So I, I, I laid the mortar systems out with the other guys. And again, we had cross-trained. I was in charge of cross-training along with uh, my counterpart from the other, other ODA, Clay Blackshear, had cross-trained our teams on how to use the mortar system. So we set the mortar systems apart, good distance you know, from each other. Um, I forgot what the actual distance that we have to be to overlap fire because it's been so long. But we set them up and we would do search and traverse. So we fire around, search, traverse, angle it. So it's sort of like you're walking the rounds, whichever way, like this, you know? Mm -hmm. And we just fired a whole big volley. Anyways, the Taliban had gotten on the radio talking about they had some wounded. So I asked Wes, hey, let me go up on this mountain and take a javelin rocket. If they bring in reinforcements with the vehicle, I'm going to take out. Because now the sun's already starting to set. So now we have the night. We own the night. And my javelin rocket, I can see thermal and I can see night. So, and, As and Mark... Mark and Calvin's bodies already been evacuated at this point? Yep. Okay. Yep. We go up the hill. Got up the hill. I got everything ready. Got the javelin. I'm sitting there, you know, sitting on a uh, Indian style. Got the javelin on my shoulder. I'm searching the area. 
you know, seeing if there's any heat signature from a vehicle coming in to bring in reinforcements or whatever. And uh, all of a sudden, next thing you know, I hear a whole bunch of scuffling off in the background. And, uh, you know, I'm already upset because everything that had transpired, plus the fact that I didn't want these guys with me because I knew something was going to happen. Guess what happens? I hear, ah, ah, you know, an Afghani, and <laughs> whatever they're speaking of. And all of a sudden, I'm like, hey, shh. You know, I told the guy that was with me, I was like, tell, you know, tell these guys to shut the hell up. He was like, dude, there's a freaking snake. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. Step on his head. Freaking, we got a mission. Shut the hell up. And he was just like, no, man, it's a viper. And I'm like, fuck. You know, and I, I was so angry. Anyways, he ended up calling it to Wes. Wes said, negative, come down. That was our, so right now, I'm like beyond living, you know. But, uh, well, you contacted me in August of 20, <clears throat> well, last month. So August of 2023, I had posted something on LinkedIn about Mark. And you sent me a message, uh, a private message, a LinkedIn direct message, and, and introduced yourself. And first of all, that was great. So great to hear from you, to hear from someone else. But why did it take you so long? Um, this is not accusatory, of course. It's just yeah. really what was going on? What else was going on with you? Why did it take you so long to, I guess, to, to contact us? Yeah, um, I, I didn't feel like I was worthy of being heard. You know, um, I wasn't living a righteous life, uh, still struggling with a lot of things. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't, like, even till this day, I the only one I talk to on my ODA is Wes Wilson, again, because he is like that older brotherly kind of like figure. Um, you know, just like I told you when we spoke, I owe a lot of apologies to a lot of guys because, you know, I would, you know, if something would happen and I'd be like, hey, let's go and be like, hey, man, we got to slow down. They're doing the right thing. They're being cautious. They're thinking tactically. I was thinking more emotionally, like, no, let's go kill the enemy. So when they would tell me no, I'd be like, you fucking coward. And then I just write the guys off, you know. And I called a lot of people cowards, um, said a lot of bad stuff throughout. And you know, even even when I transitioned, you know, I, I would have my highs where I'd start going back to church and I really start getting into the Bible. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, I hit this top, and then I fall right back down something would happen and I would fall and then I'd hit that rock bottom and I'm like no I gotta pick myself back up and I'd start climbing back up again and something would happen and it, I just I just didn't feel worthy of contacting anyone I didn't feel worthy of telling my story or reaching out to anyone or yeah I just it, it was one of those things where I just didn't feel worthy I'm sorry you felt that way and I really appreciate you contacting me because there's definitely no you know, we have no idea how you, how you feel. We just have, you know, complete sympathy and, and try to have empathy for you and appreciation for you and what you've done and the sacrifices that you've made. But Ken, what else would you like to share? And maybe show, show your shirt too. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> like that. So yeah, this is uh, my favorite one. Every time I go to Disney or Universal again, so I'm within a, a golden triangle. I'm 30 minutes away from the airport. I'm 30 minutes away from Universal Studios, SeaWorld, um, Disney, all the theme parks. So I'm 30 minutes around from there. So everywhere I go, I make sure I have a couple of these shirts and let's go branded shirts I picked up from the Hodge Twins. Um, but uh, I go there because I, I I want people to know, man. You know, like I know a lot of uh, the news media portrays uh, the white heterosexual male as being alt-right and far extremist and 
Trump supporting, you know, uneducated, but it always throws people off for some crazy reason. Again, because they regurgitate everything that's in the freaking, that the media, feed, media feeds them. It always throws them off to see a brown dude wearing a Let's Go Brandon shirt. I want to ask you a question, though, in wrap, wrapping it up, Ken, um, about going back to September 29th of Mark's yes. final battle, Mark and Cal. What do you think? I know you weren't there, like right there. What do you think Mark and Cal and or Cal or their team could have done differently? Or another thing, you made a comment about why were the two most junior ranking guys by themselves? So now I've had a lot of these questions and I've been on a mission to figure out really what happened. We've got the silver star citation, which I, which is what I've had to really rely on. However, there are accounts and there are some accounts that, that, you know, of course, I mean, everybody's accounts not going to be the same every time, but what, what could they have done differently? And was Mark and or Cal, were they, were they alone? Were they left alone where they shouldn't have been? I mean, were they, were they sent into a situation where they were somebody knew they were going to be outmanned? Can you can you elaborate on any of that at all or speculate? That's a hard one to do, man. Um, because I I don't I don't have eyes on exactly what happened um, with me being on the gun trucks, so I can't elaborate. I can't answer that truthfully for you. Yeah, I understand. Just had to ask. I mean, I'm I'm always curious of really what all happened because it seems like there weren't a lot of people around. Yeah, um, like right there, you know, with Mark. And uh, believe me, it's one of those things that we always after every mission, we always have an after action review, AAR after action review or report. So we go over what it was that happened, so that we take those. We also write them down. Um, and get those lessons learned to the OD, the, uh, to the next ODA, wherever it takes um, the next mission, so that they can read what the previous teams have done and not make those same mistakes or actually learn the enemy's TTPs, you know, and start better predicting. It was a rough deployment, man. And I, I tell you right now, it was probably, and I've been through some pretty sick ones. I was between Ramadi and Fallujah in 2003 to 2004. I was uh, in, in um, Haifa Street, in 2004 to 2005 in Baghdad, and we did a little bit of the uh, uprising in Sadar City. Um, I was in uh, Muqtadiyah when they did the big insurgency um, move in Baghdad. Uh, they did the big uh, push in, in Baghdad, and then they ended up pushing, um, doing the big surge in Mosul, pushed all the shitheads to us in Muqtadiyah area. Heavy, heavy fighting there. I think this one was probably the heaviest fighting that I've witnessed. Very target-rich environment. You know, that's that's their staging ground. That's where all the support was. They stage all their little freedom fighters that come from all over. They would stage them there. They get all motivated to be shipped out to, you know, the hellmen to go farm their poppy field or whatever the heck that they do. So it was a, it was a lot of bad guys and a yeah. very target-rich environment. So that's one of those things, shoulda, coulda, woulda. Uh, it, it, it unfortunately it, it it happens in war man and we can war game this and try to plan it as best as possible but honestly i i don't know i don't know what could have been done to prevent that okay well thank you so much for your time and for your sacrifices for the our, our country as well um anything else in closing ken no nah, brother um if you ever want to talk if you ever want to you know just reach out to me i'm always open and uh yeah man I, I greatly appreciate you having me come on board. I wanted to share this story. 
My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of PTC with my guest, Ken Alisea. If you enjoyed this one, please leave a review on Spotify and or Apple Podcast. On Spotify, you can easily interact with me at the bottom of the show notes by answering the Q&A question. Ken's details from Mark's final battle allow me to piece together just a little more of the events of Mark's final moments. I'm grateful for his time and thoughts. It wasn't easy for him to discuss.